This episode of the Ed Surge On Air podcast is brought to you by the Instructional Design and Technology Program at Emporia State University. The IDT program at ESU prepares individuals for leadership in the design, development, and integration of technology into K-12 as well as private sector teaching and other areas of organizational training. Hello and welcome to the Ed Surge On Air podcast, a weekly look at the future of education. I'm Emily Tate, a reporter here. Growing up is hard. For all our talk about how easy we had it as kids, how carefree we were, the truth is, it was pretty tough. Sure, we didn't have the responsibilities or commitments, but when you're a kid, things change, and you change, so rapidly that it can feel overwhelming. Kids today might actually have it worse thanks to technology. Can you imagine going through your awkward stage, the braces and bad haircuts and first crushes on Instagram, or trying to make friends when everyone's noses are buried in their phones? And research tells us these things are taking their toll. A 2018 Pew Research Center survey of kids aged 13 to 17 found that 7 in 10 teens think anxiety and depression are major problems for their peers. The same survey found that 6 in 10 kids feel pressure to get good grades, while nearly 3 in 10 feel pressure to look good and fit in socially. Dozens of recent studies tell a similar story. Students today are distracted, they're under a lot of pressure, and they're suffering from mental health issues more than ever before. So who can help, and how? The education community is increasingly getting involved in these issues, looping in social workers, licensed therapists, and other mental health services to help students who are struggling. You may have heard them talk about these things in the context of caring for the whole child or teaching to the whole learner. It's this idea that in order for kids to be successful academically, their other needs must be met too, and that includes their social and emotional needs. In the last few years, terms like whole child and social and emotional learning have become buzzwords. They're all over education conference agendas and making headlines in the news. But behind the buzzwords are programs, often led and managed by schools, that take into account all the different things a child needs to be able to learn and grow, even if those things reach outside the traditional roles of a school. Earlier this year, at the South by Southwest EDU conference in Austin, Texas, I sat down with Christina Cipriano, the Director of Research at the Yale Center for Emotional Intelligence and a research scientist at the Child Study Center at the Yale School of Medicine. Christina is someone who thinks about and researches this stuff, social-emotional learning, every day, and she agreed to break down for us what SEL is, where it comes from, and how it works. Here are highlights of that conversation. So I'm uh, Chris Cipriano, I'm Director of Research at the Yale Center for Emotional Intelligence, and I'm a Research Scientist at the Child Study Center at the Yale School of Medicine. So Christina, social-emotional learning has become arguably one of the hottest topics in education in the last couple of years. For those who are still new to this topic, could you explain what SEL is and why it matters? Sure. So social-emotional learning is thinking about the um, competencies that underscore our ability to be available to learn and available to teach. One of the most dominant frameworks in the field is the CASEL 5, it's the Collaborative for Academic, Social, and Emotional Learning. Those five competencies are self-awareness, self-management, social awareness, relationship skills, and responsible decision-making. When we think about social-emotional learning, we talk about how social-emotional competencies underscore your ability to learn and your ability to teach. So these are skills that all people and all learners across the lifespan need to continuously develop and um, invest their time and energy in 
to be able to be uh, positive contributors to their life and those around them. So is this a new concept? Why does it seem like all of a sudden we're hearing about it? It is certainly not a new concept and it's been around in the literature for over two decades. However, it's recently gotten a lot of more airplay as folks are realizing that whether you call it character education or peace building or conflict resolution, that they all have foundations in the social emotional learning frameworks and in that research base. Um, at our center, we use the emotional intelligence science to underscore our framing of social-emotional learning. However, depending upon which research institution you talk to, you will see other ways of thinking about and framing the problem. At the end of the day, we're talking about teaching people how to be better citizens and more positive contributors to their society. And we realize, you know, it's 2019 that that is an important skill that everybody needs. And you kind of touched on this, but in what ways does SEL set up students for success that directly relates to academic learning and also doesn't and that academic learning alone can't do. Sure. So I think a good example of this would be thinking about a student or adult's ability to regulate your emotions or as Castle calls it, um, in managing yourself. So we all have different you know, triggers of stress throughout our life and different emotions that can hijack our body's ability to be able to process the world meaningfully. And so if we're not able to regulate or downregulate in a given situation, we're not able to be available to process the information of what we're being taught. And so regardless of how fantastic your teacher may be or how incredible that science curriculum is at engaging and motivating you, if you have a student who's dealing with stress or trauma or unable to kind of get over the interpersonal interaction they had right before they entered that classroom or the trigger word that the teacher said like pop quiz that set them off into a spiral, they're not going to be able to process the dynamic, um, you know, the dynamic curriculum that's being presented to them. And so social emotional learning really teaches and targets those skill sets and competencies that underscore your availability to learn. And in our case, in our work at the center, we focus on also thinking about the social emotional learning of the adults in the room and the educators as the co-constructors of knowledge in that environment. So if I'm hearing you, and this is the first time that anyone's ever mentioned this concept to me, maybe a question people would have is, well, that's great, but doesn't sound like something you can teach. How do you teach things like emotional regulation and relationship skills? Absolutely. So my immediate answer to that on how you would teach these skill sets is that if you don't think you can teach them, you have a fixed mindset and not a growth mindset, which you've probably heard a bit about. Um, but we need to be always open and available to learning through our interactions around us. Now, the ways in which we teach these discrete skills depend upon the cognitive ability and development of the learner and how they're going to most access them. So for instance, in some of our work right now and many others in the field, when we focus on emotion regulation, we're thinking about students' cognitive reappraisal abilities and their self-talk strategies. Now, there's a lot of different ways you can manage your emotions in a given situation. For some of us, like myself, you might want to go for a run to regulate, but not all schools are conducive to that, and you can't just get up and do that, right? So when we worked with teachers, we found that they want to know how to teach those skills so that they can focus on how students will reappraise the situation to make a situation more positive or problem-focused, challenge-based, so that they think about it as something they can solve. Um, and how they're talking to themselves, really capture the essence of their self-talk strategies in ways that are going to be most meaningful. And so this doesn't mean that you're providing 
you know, a pull-in lesson every week on, you know, Tuesdays at three o'clock to teach them how to reappraise their emotions, but rather that you are modeling those skills and the way that you interact with that student and with that learner before, during, and after the situation so that they are continuously seeing and learning how to pick up in that way of thinking and that way of speaking to themselves and to others. We're going to pause the conversation there for a moment for a quick word from our sponsor. Are you interested in creating an innovative, technology-driven classroom where your students can thrive? Emporia State University's Instructional Design and Technology Master's Program can help you do just that. The IDT program is available entirely online, so you can complete the coursework from the comfort of your own home, and it is now offered in an accelerated format. If enrolled full-time, you can complete the degree in as little as a year. Given the diverse career tracks in instructional design, multimedia, and technology, this program offers students the flexibility to customize their course of study based on individual goals and interests. Graduates of the program are well prepared to practice their unique multidisciplinary profession in a variety of settings, including business, K-12 schools, higher education, government and military, or to pursue doctoral studies. Learn more at emporia.edu grad. That address once more is emporia.edu grad. But are you saying that it's less about teaching and more about naming it, addressing it, and giving like strategies to respond? So I would kind of reframe what you said there. So I, I would say that that is teaching it. So it's the ability yeah. to recognize, understand, label, express, and regulate our emotions. That's actually the acronym RULER. That is our approach at the Center for Emotional Intelligence for teaching these competencies. And so going through that pattern of steps and having developmentally appropriate access points for all of our learners is the gateway in. I want to go back to, you were saying that SEL has been around for at least a couple decades. What did it look like before it you know, kind of became this buzzword, before it was dominating South By? You know, if you look back, you'll see a conversations about character education or like moral education in the school about being a good citizen, conflict resolution programming. So all pockets that begin to target social emotional learning competencies. When we even talk about SEL as a larger field, there is discrepancy depending upon what researcher, practitioner, or policymaker you speak to on how they will define what competencies fall within it and so where the limits of the skill set lie. And that's a, that's a bigger conversation in the field right now. Stephanie Jones' work at Harvard in the Easel Lab, she's producing a taxonomy of cell terminology to be able to help the field to better define. And the Castle 5 that I mentioned earlier is the most dominant research to practice framework that's currently used. So most of the for-profit cell entities that, come, that have come into the market and that are in schools will talk about their uh, alignment with Castle 5. However, there is certainly room for discourse in those um, delineations at this point in the process because we are still exploring it as a field. And I will add to that that alongside that discourse is also the conversation of how to adequately assess social emotional learning. So the most popular question that I get asked on a regular basis weekly in my email I will get an email from someone somewhere in the world who wants to know what the best SEL score is, what the best SEL score is. And I you know, set up a call and I have a nice conversation back about how 
well, you don't want to assess SEL. You, in the, so having a cell score is, is a completely um, inappropriate way of thinking about it. And rather that you want to be thinking about what social emotional competency you're trying to assess and what the most meaningful way to do that is. And that's important because if we're not able to show that children and adults are learning using these programs and have outcomes that are meaningful, then this will unfortunately just become you know, that thing that was and people will move, on, move their focus on in 10 to 20 years onto the next big thing that comes into the space. So there is an urgency among the cell community to begin to create those data points and define that assessment landscape so that this doesn't turn into a conversation like um, we all unfortunately remember with No Child Left Behind where standardized assessments came into the, um, into the narrative and started to shift the focus of how programming was being offered in classrooms and created a culture of fear around test taking and all of the unfortunate spill off that has occurred. It was founded in a great place of we just want students to be able to read at a fourth grade level, right? So it started in a great place in it, and it went it went rogue. Um, and so the the cell community is invested in thinking about how we assess cell well and how to provide that um, that foundation and those um, those scores and those tests in a meaningful way to practitioners, to teachers in classrooms, to district leaders, to policymakers, to researchers, so that we can make sure that evidence based programming for social emotional learning is what's getting into the classrooms and that it's being evaluated fairly and contributing well to the overall assessment landscape and framework in schools. So in your work, what kind of SEL programs have you found work best and you know, going back to assessment, how can you measure that? So my work at the Center for Emotional Intelligence, we have a program called RULER. It's the RULER approach. And so we are not a drop-in social-emotional learning program. We are a way of teaching and thinking that's anchored in four tools that become part of the framework and the fabric of the classroom and school community. So they can be used and accessed across any point in the school day by any of the educators and students in the, in the classrooms in ways that are meaningful and authentic for them. That is a differentiating point from our approach from many of the other programs that are currently out there that are cataloged in ways that you kind of pull a lesson and use a lesson at a given time to teach, you know, a discrete skill set. Um, and they all have different recommendations throughout. So depending upon what it is that you're teaching, you need to think about what particular aspects you are assessing and testing. For us, we focus on, and much of my work focuses on pointing people to looking at discrete assessments that look at concrete skill sets. So if you're looking at thinking about emotion regulation, as I mentioned before, let's look, about, look at how we can best assess emotion regulation. And if that assessment doesn't exist yet in school-based settings, then let's build it. And it's one of the things that we're currently working on um, as a line of research. Similarly, thinking about school climate and school culture. So one of the biggest pathways to looking at effective outcomes in social emotional learning programming is looking at how you shift the school climate or culture first. So it's unlikely to see that you will have students whose academic scores are increasing after their first kind of interaction with a program or approach. However, you're much more likely to see it's much more sensitive to shift that school classroom or clim uh, climate or culture first. And so assessing that as a kind of a gateway um, towards that outcome. I feel like you can ask this question about every single facet of education, but who does SEL leave behind? What kind of students just aren't being taken into account 
in these kind of programs? Sure, so that's actually the purpose of the panel that I'm here at South by Southwest EDU giving with my colleagues today. And we're looking at all of your traditionally underserved student populations and their inability to access current cell programming. So we're talking about children with specific learning disabilities and diverse learners, ethnic and racial minorities, children who are serviced in therapeutic set settings, alternative environments, correctional facilities. So a real wide net of the other children in the story and thinking about how there may or may not be access points for them throughout the way programs are currently structured. So an example I can give you is when we think about how we teach some of the well-known strategies for accessing and instructing social-emotional learning competencies like perspective taking and decision-making involve group discussion. If you have a child who has um, an auditory disability and you make sure that they have you know hearing aids or there is a translator or there is sign language being used that's only a step in the right direction because we know that when a classroom of students is talking or when group work is occurring that children can talk over one another and it can be difficult to follow social overtures similarly a student with autism spectrum disorder or emotional behavioral disturbances may not be able to pick up on those social cues which is the driving force of how the curriculum is originally written and so finding ways to create flexibility within the essence of the program so that it's not just the method of instruction but also how they can engage with the learning content is critical and unfortunately there is few and far between examples of that level of full inclusivity across the kind of mainstream cell programming to date there are a few pockets doing it really well in really small spaces and there are some larger research movements that are working towards that direction and we're here today to kind of highlight some of those pieces and talk more about the urgency in the field there to make sure we're, we're reaching our diverse learners. And one other point that I will bring to bear towards that end is that when we think about our effective responses, so I gave the example earlier about you know children needing to downregulate or when you're really escalated in a giving situation. So if you have a student who has a learned self-helplessness or has decided they're no good at math, for instance, and not going to be able to learn this, right? We know that they start to check out. They're not going to be available to learn. In the given situation, they may be anxious or frustrated. They're least likely to pick up on, you know, no matter how wonderful that curriculum or program is. If you then add on top of that symptomology that's, you know, based in and constituted in the, the child's specific diagnosis, it can complicate their ability, you know, executive functioning, their behavioral control, their ability to process it any further. And so when we look at social emotional learning programming and we're thinking about our children who are underperforming and underserviced in these regards, they actually have the most to gain from being able to regulate their emotions and being able to label how they're feeling in a given instance. We know that these children are unfortunately the most likely to be bullied or victimized um, and socially isolated. And so they are most in need of um, having these skill sets and having them practiced and be most meaningful for them. How are you addressing those underserved students? Is it a case-by-case -case basis? So one pathway in that I've been working on with my colleagues for the better part of seven years is looking at the social processes in classrooms serving marginalized and underserved student populations. And so thinking about how and if we could teach to the interactions among the educators and the interactions of the, uh, between the teachers and students, that that's a pathway in. So again, talking more globally 
So we use the Universal Design for Learning framework um, towards this end and being able to create programming that has the greatest level of flexibility within it to be able to you know, allow the learner access points and ability, uh, the opportunity to engage and demonstrate their competency in a given situation. We have within our portfolio examples of behavioral indicators that are specific to you know specific student populations or specific learning disabilities and there are a breadth of other programming options out there that are currently doing the same type of cataloging or persona identification um, to be able to help teachers with discrete skill sets that have been empirically found to work well for specific populations of students but as a field there is not a comprehensive one look one lens way of thinking and my colleagues and I are here today at South by Southwest to talk more about like what that could look like in a few years and and how do we work together as a field to build it. For schools that don't have the resources to build an intentional aspirational SEL program what are some things that they or educators can do that require minimal time and money to improve a school's social emotional supports? Well, first is becoming knowledgeable about what we're talking about when we're talking about cell. And so I point people to the CASEL website and the wealth of resources that are available there through the National Foundation to be able to access information and basic understandings of the frameworks and competencies, as well as how to build implementation, you know, how to implement a program in your school. And what's great about the CASEL resources is they, you know, they highlight a number of key programs, they call them CASEL Select programs, but it is not you know, mutually exclusive in a way that you could pull in, you can pull and draw from different programs and approaches and science that's available um, to build what would be most meaningful for your school district. A second point is that it's important for the leadership to invest in social emotional learning as something that is important from the top down not just the bottom up, and that in order to have students who are increasing in their social emotional competencies, you need to have teachers who feel like they are available to teach, which means you need to focus on their psychosocial uh, health and well-being, which means you need to focus on the leader and their psychosocial health and well-being. When leaders are not bought in to the importance of it, this just becomes another thing to do that doesn't stick and does not sustain and that is, you know, the complete antithesis of what, you know, folks in the cell field want to happen with social emotional learning. This has been the Ed Surge On Air podcast. Each week we feature conversations like this one. So please subscribe to keep up with future episodes. And you can support the show by taking a minute to tell us how we're doing with a rating or review. This episode was edited by me, Emily Tate, with production assistance from Chris Vittori. We'll be back next week with more on the future of education. Thanks for listening.